this episode, the episode on healing from emotional abuse this week was actually recorded for my other podcast, Embrace Your Crazy, that I co-host with my friend James Castorina, who has been featured on this podcast a heck of a lot of times. We recorded this initially for the other podcast simply because we thought it would be more general mental health, but because the content actually ended up being way more focused on childhood sexual abuse and incest, I thought that you guys could benefit from this as well. So thank you guys for tuning in. If you feel like checking out Embrace Your Crazy, my other podcast, um, you can find that on any on all streaming sites. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in to Healing from Emotional Abuse this week. Can you heal from abuse? What do I do after leaving my narcissist? What does a healthy relationship look like? These concerns cross the minds of over 20 people every minute, over 28,800 people every day. And the sad fact is, we still don't talk about it enough. Healing from emotional abuse isn't a band-aid situation, but it doesn't have to take years either. The lives of millions of other survivors around the world have been impacted by their narcissist. Yours doesn't have to. To show you how to live a free, confident, and peaceful life, your host and founder of the Healing from Emotional Abuse philosophy, Marissa F. Cohen. This episode of Healing from Emotional Abuse is brought to you by the Healing from Emotional Abuse philosophy. Have you ever wondered why you keep falling for the same type of person, wondering when it's going to be your turn to have control of your life? Now is the time. The Healing from Emotional Abuse philosophy, the three keys to overcoming narcissism, is an easy-to-follow program where I show you how to release your trauma in a safe and healthy way, build resilience, confidence, self-esteem, self-love, and self-worth, and then rebuild your environment. Surround yourself with healthy people and energy. Your life is yours, and the decisions you make should reflect the people in your life who deserve to be there. People who treat you with kindness and respect, who value you and show you that you are worthy of love every single day. Friends who love and support you and are positive and inspirational and a partner who encourages you to achieve your goals and think bigger than you've ever thought before. Following my three-step system will change your life. I fell into the cycle of abuse, dating narcissist after narcissist, each one of them taking a piece of me with them. And I struggled to know who I was or who I could trust for a long time but I learned all the right steps to take and want to help everyone else who's struggling like I did do the same. I don't want to lose any more survivors to suicide, addiction, or self-harm. There is help out there. So I'm offering my book, The Healing from Emotional Abuse Philosophy, The Three Keys to Overcoming Narcissism for free. Scan the QR code in the show notes to get your free copy of my best-selling book filled with exercises and activities to help you overcome your trauma. In addition to my book, I'm also offering a free coaching session where we'll put together a healing plan specifically for you. Make an appointment with me at schedulealcallwithmarissa.com. That's schedule, S-C-H-E-D-U-L-E, a call, C-A-L-L, with Marissa, M-A-R-I-S-S-A.com. It's time to take your life back and live with confidence, freedom, and peace. So uh, spiritual awakenings, yeah, uh, this experience really fed my ability to to see the truth of what love is, um, because I know what love isn't, and <laughs> and uh, my my self awareness 
um, and refusal to accept abuse is definitely the essence of me. And, um, and I think that that's what the spirit self, my higher self was here to experience. Um, and I, I, I don't resent my childhood at all anymore, which is kind of crazy. Uh, that's huge. Yeah. I'm actually grateful for it. Um, with that background, right. I was kind of trained to accept abuse and to norm, to have that normalized. And, uh, it's what I knew it's what I was comfortable with. And that ended up, uh, perpetuating some of the abuse that I dished out in my first relationship. Um, and that's Bubba. I met you when I was in the middle of that relationship. And, uh, so that, that was an interesting relationship. We, he and I were together nine years um, and we were engaged for about a year and a half before we, he and I split up. And we split up because I was abusive of him. And that, that was a hard pill for me to swallow. He was, a, he, he was and is a beautiful person. We are friends today uh, as, because we've been able to, to reconnect and, and recognize and reconcile, you know, the abuse that I did put him under uh, and put him through. But I, I, I've also been able to recognize the beauty that he did show me. He showed me compassion. He showed me um, love and empathy, uh, unlike anything that I'd seen before. Um, and he, he and I started seeing each other, I was 14. And with him showing me the love that he showed me early on, I was able to assert myself in the household that I was growing up in. And, uh, and I was growing stronger and stronger and having a stronger will for myself to stand up for myself against my mother. Uh, I, I dished out as much as I could dish out back to my mother as in my later teen years, mid, mid to late teen years, not going to lie. And, uh, you've always been a little bit of a firecracker. You definitely are a little bit of a firecracker. You're a feisty one. Yeah, I'm feisty. I, I, I don't take shit anymore. And, um, and, and that's, you know, that, that's where the, oh, kept, <laughs> you've kept me in check a few times. <laughs> You probably yeah. deserved it every time. Oh, I did. Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. I did. I did. <laughs> I, admit I admit I wholeheartedly admit it. I accept my fault. He's outnumbered yeah, by I think, women. I, I mean, I like to think, or, or I, I hope that, that me keeping you in check, Bubba, has, has contributed to your recovery in some capacity. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. I've needed it. I mean, Good. I mean, you need those types of people in your life. You need people yeah. to be honest with you. You need people that are going to support you and, and, and that are aware, aware mm -hmm. of what you're going through. Yeah. Okay. And, and I hope you're able to, you know, reach out to me if you ever feel like you don't have an ear or what, or whatever, me, you know. Let me, right, I'm going to tell a quick story about Janae. No, no, I'm going to tell a quick story okay, about go ahead. you. Because okay. I, and this is what I mean. This is, and this is what I mean. This like, I, I think that because of everything you've been through, you know, and I know, like the trauma, the, I mean, the, obviously, definitely PTSD, the, the, the childhood abuse, the, I mean, the suicidality, the self-harm, I mean, all of it, you know, you didn't let it win. 
you know, you used it to, and even, even when I first met you, there was a part of you that was trying to make sure that it didn't let other people, to let take other people down. I remember one night, and, I, and this is one thing I always appreciated about you, and even now, I remember it was like 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and we were both insomniacs in college. Janae and I were both serious insomniacs, and um, I was having like a rough, rough go at it that one night. Like, no, I mean, like, I was just having like a panic attack, and I miss, I was just talking to Janae. I messaged her, I think, on Facebook. This girl walked down probably like three blocks in the rain to my to my apartment to come in and comfort me and stayed and, and hung out with me for about two hours. You were there for about an hour and a half. I remember. And you walked back. Uh, I night. think it was like two and a half hours. Yeah. You were in the, in the middle of the night because I was having a rough, like I was, I was struggling with my anxiety and depression. You know, and, and some stuff I was dealing with, and and you know, she came down. That's what I mean. Is like you've always had that part about you that you you don't want other people to suffer. You know, and yeah. experience what you went through, and I think you know, and that speaks volumes. That's I mean, even back then, you were like you were aware of it, but it was still hard. It was still like you still had that struggle going on. I oh remember. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That was that was oh man, that was intense. Like you said, that was like right in the middle of of that relationship you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it was well, like there was that that essence of me was still there with my partner, but I didn't realize that, you know, my my uh, abused child would, you know, throw tantrums when it didn't get its way or, you know, certain things like that. And it would throw tantrums in, in strange ways. Um, and so I wasn't I, I would create, so I, I created this like duality environment for my partner that just was not conducive to, to him opening up at all. And so he would further shut down. And we, we've actually learned that my partner, um, he actually has like a rare um, emotional condition. So he's, he's unable to actually recognize his own emotions and and put words to it and that was part of what was so difficult about that relationship is that i i was looking for someone who i could communicate with and he was not able to communicate because he 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 was not self-aware he was not capable of that uh emotional self-awareness that i was and i wasn't able to to recognize that we neither of us were um and so that contributed to it go ahead sorry uh, can i ask a question about that yeah. Um, do you mind sharing? And please tell me if if you're if you're not comfortable. But did he also have child abuse in his life? He doesn't believe so. I mean, his family were were so healthy. He hadn't really had any kind of trauma in his nuclear family. I, um, I wish. Oh my god, I wish. All right. <laughs> we, right. No, I'm I wish I. No, I didn't have it. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I um, wish I had a family. Like that. We're so <laughs> healthy. Wasn't, yeah, but because he wasn't, he hadn't experienced that. That's what allowed him to have the empathy that he did for me. Um, and he, at least he was able to to he's able to experience empathy. Like that's he's like on the spectrum of this rare emotional disorder that uh, he's able to experience empathy and and recognize that someone else is suffering 
but is unable to pinpoint his own emotions. Um, and so that was, that was interesting um, that he was able to, to provide me with the comfort and the space and, and appreciate his privilege of growing up in a non-broken home in such a way. And, and just to, to caveat this, everyone has a dysfunction in their family, whether they recognize it or not. Say that a little louder one more time. <laughs> Everyone has a form of dysfunction in their family, whether they recognize it or not. It exists. We are human. We are fuck ups. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's just the reality of it. Um, so his was in his family. It was a little bit more subtle. Um, but I recognize I was able to recognize with him and I being together that my family was not normal. Uh, the more I spent time with him and his family, I was like, this, this is like, I could go to family functions on holidays and nobody's fighting. Nobody's like flinching or like abusing one another. That's something, I, that's something I've noticed about you is that over the years, it's almost like I can almost tell just even through some of your social media posts, just the, the awareness aspect has grown. And, oh, yeah. And, I mean, like spiritual awareness, your your emotional awareness, all of the above. I mean, even going back to when I first met you, that is definitely something oh, yeah. I've seen. <laughs> that awareness piece has been probably my anchor through all of this, I'd, I'd say. Um, and it just keeps growing and growing that was an interesting awakening. If I hadn't had that relationship, I probably wouldn't be as far along as I am today. And I appreciate that relationship so much. He and I have so much love for one another that that's just never going to die. We're, we're, we're definitely friends forever. <laughs> um, and he doesn't even admit it to his family that we're friends again because of the abuse that I did put him through. Um, we ended up splitting up because I, I slapped him. And that was the first, like I, I had never been physically abusive to him. That was the first instance of that. And he knew that that was not okay. And he walked away from it. And, um, and I'm so proud of him for doing that. I, I'm so grateful for him doing that because I needed that. And I, and I knew it when I did it too. Like I, as soon as I slapped him, I went, I am so sorry. I, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. It was just out of pure. I, I think it was that, that anger from all of the trauma had manifested in, in that frustration of him not being able to express himself, him not being able to communicate and, and would regularly shut down when I would try to communicate. And, um, and that desire, that need for someone to communicate with me uh, was so great and so manipulative and so cunning that uh, it just, it, it built up over all that time. And, uh, and I slapped him and I was so depressed. I was so, so depressed at that time. I was regularly suicidal um, and, and I had been since I was 10. Um, so I was, t I was 10 years old when I first started to self-harm 
Um, and it started, you know, I would go to the bathroom because that was the only place I could find peace or serenity. And I went into the bathroom and I'd find a bar of soap and uh, cuticle cutters. And I would cut the bar of soap um, to try and get my frustrations out because I was, all of that trauma energy was pent up and I needed to get it out. And uh, so I would, I would carve aggressively this, this bar of soap. And, um, and then that, that became less and less satisfying and less and less of a release. And uh, so then I, one day I took those cuticle cutters and started scratching my arms. And, um, and that became more and more of a release for me. And, uh, and as, as time progressed, I, I did it more and more aggressively. And, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it to the point where, where I would actually harm myself uh, in a dangerous way. It was, it was primarily for a release of energy and I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't have any control over my environment, over what was happening. And I, uh, so I took that control back and claimed it for myself. And part of that neglect and abuse was that my, my mother would place the responsibility of her emotions onto us as, as her children. And so I was constantly blaming myself for her pain because I was so empathetic and I've, I've always been so extremely empathetic um, to the point of like uh, almost clairvoyant sensitivity. Um, and so with that, with that extreme em empathy, I, I internalized it and went, I'm the one, I'm the one that's, that's wrong in this equation. I've caused my mother this harm. I've caused pain to my family. And that's why my family is so broken as I blamed myself. And so I, I got that frustration out by, you know, cutting myself and, uh, it got so bad that I, I would, um, uh, I, I ended up like scratching myself so raw that it, my arms were raw for weeks for two, like two weeks straight. And I'd wear long sleeves and, uh, and then that was like middle school, junior high, that was junior high. Yeah. So like junior high, uh, that was, I was, that was probably one of my lowest points was, I went, nobody sees me, nobody sees me. And that, that little girl who needed help, who needed support was reaching out through that as well. And so I went, you know what? The second week of my arms being raw, I went, I'm gonna actually expose my arms and see if anybody notices. And I did for, for one whole week, my arms raw as fuck we're out for everybody to see and nobody said a damn thing to me nobody uh, uh i was so invisible that it made me even lower <laughs> i went okay people really wouldn't care if i just killed myself they wouldn't and that fed this the suicidal ideations that fed that um that part of my psyche and uh and that that kind of like self-training 
and, and endurance of all of that carry through most, uh, uh, most of my adulthood until about four years ago. Um, and so that being said, I, uh, I learned a lot from it. <laughs> I learned a lot from that alone. Um, being able to recognize that, you know, I, 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 I do have to do this on my own. Society is not equipped to handle people who grow up in hell homes. We're just not, we don't talk about it. It's something that we sweep under the rug. We don't wanna look at, at, at that part of, of this re human reality. Um, and so I just, I would like, I would end up doubling down and, and push through despite, despite the fact that I wanted to kill myself. And I would, I, you know, I would sit in the suck for hours. I would sit and like fantasize about how I would kill myself. And I would, uh, throughout my, from the age of 10, I ended up having panic attacks on a regular basis. Uh, like 10 panic attacks a day from the age of 10 until I left that house. I stayed as long as I did for my baby sister. So my baby sister came in uh, when I was 12. She came into my, my world and was my world. Um, I saw this beautiful little child who was defenseless and I vowed. I think she was actually part of the reason why I didn't kill myself because I saw this little defenseless child and I went, this, this little thing is coming into our broken home. She needs an advocate and I, I need to be that advocate. And so I, I stuck it out. Um, I pushed through that pain. Um, and out of my, my mother probably changed her diapers. I could probably count on both of my hands. <laughs> uh, throughout her infancy. Um, I changed her diapers more, more than anybody in the family, uh, being 12. And I would, I would come from home from school and she, she would be sitting in her diaper full of, in her soiled diaper for what I could tell was hours, hours. My mother completely, like she would check out, her depression was so bad, she would just check out and not, not tend to the cares of her child. She, she suffered with post, uh, postpartum depression with each and every one of us. Um, and so that was, that was part of it. And so we ended up, I ended up changing her diapers. First thing I would come home from school and change my baby sister's diapers right away because I knew she needed it. And um, so that's, that's how that, you know, I was a mother to my baby sister and she, she, I saw her as my baby sister. I'd take her, you know, out shopping. When I got my car, I had a car seat in the back of my car. <laughs> People, there was a, a rumor that had gone around when I was in high school that I was pregnant. And once I had a car seat in the back of my car, I was like, oh, I think she actually did have a baby. And so that was like, and I was a virgin. Like it was just, it was so bizarre. It was such a bizarre thing. Um, I, in high school, I, I never really actually connected with anybody. I never got close enough to anybody because I couldn't trust them, but I was still seeking out that, that connectivity. I was still seeking it wherever I could. So I was, I was like 
a part of the outskirts of all the different cliques and groups in high school. And so I would go, I would make my rounds like week to week, I'd sit at a, at, at a different table uh, of cliques and would listen and be a support. And that's kind of how I, I learned. I learned how to listen. I learned how to, um, to provide what I wasn't provided through that. And, uh, and that, that's pretty much been like the essence of me and, and what carried that first relationship so far. And so he and I split up and when, when, when I slapped him, he walked out. And at that point, I, the abandonment issues that I had, whoo, they went into overdrive. I tried to kill myself seven times in two days. I tried to drink myself to death. I, I can't even remember all of the, the attempts that I tried. I tried, like, I was going to walk down to the, to the train tracks down the road from where my house was, right by Rowan. Um, I don't know if you remember where the train tracks are through, through yeah. Glassboro, but it was right down the road for me. So uh, I, I walked down the train tracks. And what's crazy is that, like, every time this would happen or the attempts would happen, there would be some larger force that would intervene in some capacity. Um, a friend of mine from the music department, her, she was living around the corner from me. And uh, this was, I think the first, the first time in that two day period. And uh, we hung out and she could see the pain she could see it. And I was, I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go home, I think. And she goes, uh, are, are you okay? And I said, I'll be fine. You know, just kind of checked out because in my mind at that point, I had already decided I'm going to drive to Union Lake in Millville, my hometown. And I was going to drive into Union Lake. Um, and so I, I left her house, walked back to, to my communal home that I was living in. And I got one of my stuffed animals. I got my pillow. I got a blanket, my comfort objects to take with me. Um, and I was in my car sitting there going, okay, I'm, I'm about to go. And I go to start the car and I hear, on my window and I look and it's my friend it's my friend Jillian and she uh she goes hey you okay something didn't feel right with you leaving and I went okay I guess this isn't happening <laughs> like um she was my angel for that that instance and I went thank you <laughs> I said thank you for for coming and checking in you know thank you I appreciate it and that was all I needed to not do it that was the first instance but the final instance that got me into uh the psych ward was Chad had finally come by um and I was I was telling all of my close friends I was like yeah this is no I want to die I'm ready to die I'm ready to go and uh 
and they ended up getting in touch with Chad and he came and uh, I was sitting there with a bottle of pills and I was like, this is what I was doing. I was drinking like this big bottle of alcohol. I can't even remember what it was. I think it was rum or Kraken or something. It was like a fifth of Kraken. And um, so I'm like chugging Kraken and taking pills. I'm like, I, I would take a shot of Kraken and take a, take a pill take a shot of Kraken, take a pill. And Chad came over and, uh, and he like took the alcohol away from me. He took the pills away from me. And, um, and I was angry with him because he abandoned me in my mind, in my broken mind. And I went, no, I'm, I'm trying to die. Like, leave me alone. You, you left me, let me let me go and so I went to the kitchen and I grabbed a knife and uh and I was gonna I was gonna cut myself like seriously harm myself and he ended up fighting the knife out of my hand oh god I feel so bad for what I put this man through (laughs) but he fought the knife out of my hand and I was really trying I was really trying he got it out of my hand and then just just hugged me in this bear hug and then got you know a blanket wrapped me up in the blanket and then uh sat down and called my friends to come and my friends came and uh, they called an ambulance and uh the ambulance came, the EMTs came, and they went, hey, so Janae, hey, you know, and they were very kind, uh, very kind. They said, hey, what's going on? I was like, I don't want to be here. I'm done. I'm ready to go. And, uh, and so they took me to the psych ward, and I was in the psych ward for hours. I mean, not the psych ward. I was in the ER for hours, and I had, you know, a babysitter with me. Um, but that didn't happen until later. So I was just sitting there by myself, no support. Uh, none of my friends came to, to sit with me. I was alone in the ER. And that kind of fed the self-harm thoughts, of course. And uh, they had, you know, a babysitter with me. So I sat with the babysitter. And then uh, they evaluated me, I think several times and they went, okay, uh, we're gonna hold you here until a bed opens up. Um, And so I ended up staying the night in the ER and most of the next before a bed opened up and they they sent me to the psych ward. And that was the first time I'd ever been in a place like that. And I went, okay, this is where I'm at. I spent like the first two or three days in my room, uh, not coming out really for anything, but, but food. Um, and I, I learned so many things about just how messed up our, our, uh, medical system is. <laughs> Don't get me on it's, that soapbox, please. That's all I'm yeah. going to say. Don't get me on my soapbox. 
oh my god I, I learned I learned so much I mean there were people in there who were just cycles like they would come in from they were they were homeless and this you know they they would come in because they wanted to kill themselves or they would come in saying that they wanted to kill themselves because they were so depressed and maybe they did uh, you know uh, uh, but they would come in and they would have a safe bed they would have food to eat because they couldn't you know, it, they couldn't be turned away. And the uh, debt, the medical debt that they accrued as a result of, of that vicious cycle kept them on the streets. Um, and that, that broke my heart to see that. Um, and I, I, I went, I don't want to end up like this. I don't want to end up like this. And I saw, I saw myself potentially ending up like that. Um, and it wasn't until like a nurse from that psych ward came in and, and said something to me that kind of opened up my eyes. And she said, expectations lead to disappointment, honey. And I, I guess my brain was primed for that information. Uh, so I went, oh, wait, what? <laughs> I, I didn't realize that this, this whole time, you know, I had this expectation of other people trying to save me or, you know, expecting somebody to step in um, and, and realizing that ex that expectation fueled much of my thinking and fueled the trigger for that circling the drain. Um, in that psych ward, I was falsely diagnosed, uh, by a psychologist who spent five minutes with me twice the entire time I was there. And she, she was just so di diagnostically happy. Like it, 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 I didn't know, like, I didn't, I didn't know. I just was like, okay, she's a professional. She knows. No, she didn't fucking know. She didn't know me. She didn't know what was going on. She just assumed that I, I had these, I, I was a borderline personality disorder, which I am not. I've learned that. I am not borderline personality disorder. Um, but she diagnosed me and I, I lived my life thinking that that was my diagnosis. Um, when it was just my trauma response my inability to to process the trauma and the the grave aspect of that trauma um she also diagnosed me with major depressive disorder which which essentially i did but uh not at the same time because that was also part of the trauma like i am no longer depressed like I do not have major depression in my life anymore because of this healing work that I've done from the trauma. It is not major de depressive disorder. Otherwise, I'd be still majorly depressed. This is not like it's, this is something that I could get out of and I got out of it. And in all honesty, I think a lot of these diagnoses that, that we like to slap onto people is, is, premature i don't think we fully understand the human capabilities of the mind and that the diagnoses can can cripple uh 
in itself, like prevent people from getting the help that they needed. And that's what ended up happening for me was that these diagnoses were like my label. And I felt like that's what I had that, that I was going to be stuck with for the rest of my life. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. We put so many, so much emphasis on labels in this country. It like makes me crazy because you're right. It really does. It, it reframes how we view ourselves. So when we are slapped with a label like borderline personality disorder, that's a huge label. That's a, that's a huge hindrance on what you feel and believe you are capable of. And I think that that's one of the biggest mistakes and Bubba might disagree with me, but I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that our healthcare system makes. I mean, there's a lot and, and we could do several episodes on that alone, but (laughs) absolutely. And I would love to participate if, if, if you guys ever want me back, I would love to come back and discuss it, but making a note. I'll just, I'll say the one, I'll just say now one little piece on this. Um, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that a lot of people, they just, they are diagnosed, like diagnosis happy. You know, I'm very hesitant to throw certain diagnoses around, but I mean, there's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You know, sometimes it actually does help the person get the treatment that they need. I mean, I, I've actually recognized certain diagnoses in someone and other people didn't. And it was just like, this, and, and ended up digging that it has helped people get the treatment that they needed. You know, yeah. And, and but again, I but again, not every, I agree with you. Not every clinician or psychologist or psychiatrist takes the time to even get to know their client. And that again, it is a broken system. I could sit here all day and, and trust oh me, yeah, there's, we, every <laughs> professional acknowledges it. We all acknowledge it. It's not even a, a, it's a fact. It's not yeah. even an opinion. I was talking. Yeah, to we, somebody, oh, sorry. Yeah, I, th- I feel like we, uh, in a lot of ways, we are in the dark ages when it comes to mental health and uh, understanding <laughs> the human mind because of how complex it can be. Um, but, but at the same time, I, I think that, of course, these diagnoses, these diagnoses exist for that reason to, to, re- to get the treatment that is needed, um, but that, that we should maybe like maybe view it from a different angle like being able to to access uh a different aspect of the cognition um anyway we were talking about diagnosis and and that could be a whole other episode of course but um so yeah i went i went to that uh psych ward i went into iop for uh for therapy, it was like a group therapy. And there it was, I didn't realize the gravity of what I had come out of, freshly come out of, um, until I went to group therapy and IOP. And I'm sitting there with this group and and I would, you know, share my story of the fact that my, you know, my father sexually abused me and um, you know, all this shit that happened in my family home. And they all, like every single one of them looked at me with just pure horror on their faces and some of these people they didn't recognize the horror of their own experiences either like one of them had witnessed a murder you know there there was so much so much craziness in that in that room and but I was able to share it and what's beautiful is I, I met this beautiful woman she was like in her 70s and she had isolated herself so much for like 40 years 
to the point where she she was like she would not leave her apartment um she didn't have friends she had like one friend that she would talk to over the phone and that was it um she did not leave her house for 40 years and she's like in her 70s you know and and I shared my story with my sexual abuse and she came up to me after one of the IOPs and and I'll never forget this she she came up and she, she said thank you for sharing your story it it's helping me to put words to my trauma and she shared with me the for the first person in her life she had never told a single soul that she had been sexually abused <sighs> And I was the first person that she shared that with. And I, uh, to this day, I'm entirely just humbled and grateful for, for the generation in which I grew up in and the privilege that that provides, provided me to be able to share that. Um, and, and I did like that, me sharing in that group allowed her to find a voice and share it with the group That's after amazing. several yeah yeah and the entire like the entire time during IOP she would pass when it would come to her she would just she would just go no pass pass thank you pass I'll just listen I'll just listen and uh and it took like three more sessions after she had said that to me for her to actually get up the the strength to share in in the group that was beautiful. That was beautiful. And I, I, I think, I, I hope that that exchange really helped her and her recovery and, and helped her to open up and, and find more friends and get out there. Um, and so that was, that was part of that. And anyway, so I, I went to, to school at Rowan for music education. Music was, was my therapy throughout my life. I was in, involved in choirs, uh, my entire childhood uh I was I took every possible music class that I could possibly take in my senior year um I did so well in my high school years that uh that I was able to to take all these extra electives and they were all music classes um and and that was like my determination I was like I am not gonna get stuck here I'm gonna go to school I'm gonna get the fuck out of this hell house <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and my, my grades had suffered up until, you know, when it started to get serious. And I learned that it was pretty serious when I got into like middle school and, and high school. And I was like, okay, I got to get my shit together. I got, I have to get my shit together and I have to be able to go to school. And I know that my mom's not going to save money for me. I'm going to have to go based on merit alone. And I made all of these plans. I'm like, I'm going to school. And so that's, that's what drove me was my education, um, uh, my education and my love for music. And uh, I just would keep singing and singing and singing. That was the way for me to find my voice. Um, I would practice choir music at home and, you know, I'd be singing at home. And if my mom was there, she'd be like, shut up, you know, running from the, from downstairs. Cause uh, it, in their words, my mother and my, my older sister, I used to sound like a dying cat. That's the meanest thing I've ever heard. That's, I've heard this, yeah. I've heard this girl saying she is, no. I don't it believe is, for a second that you sound like no, a dying cat. No, I've heard her sing. All right, karaoke yeah. bar, let's go. 
Uh, yeah, actually, so I, I ended up, uh, I, I learned a lot about music in my high school years, and then um, I ended up being a part of the uh, the STARS program, I think, yeah. uh, which was a high school program that, that allowed me to go to Cumberland County College, which is now Rowan, uh, Rowan's uh, camp, Villa, Vineland campus or whatever. Um, so I was, I went to Cumberland County college and I was there for two years. Uh, I took seven classes every semester. Um, and only a quarter of those classes transferred over to Rowan. Um, yeah, that was the whole thing. Sounds like college. It sounds like, sounds like Rowan. That was a Rowan problem. I had to fight for my credits. That was nonsense. Yeah, it was. Um, and so for, for six years, I went to college for six years total. Uh, I went to Cumberland County College. They didn't have like music education program, but they had like a general music education associates program. So I was like, okay, okay, I'll do my general music association degree or whatever, associates degree. And um, so I, I did that. And, and then I transferred over to Rowan. I prepared for college auditions uh, and I auditioned at eight different schools. And uh, I got into, I want to say six out of eight of those schools. Um, and the one school that I wanted to go to the most, oh my God, they couldn't accept me because they had already filled up all of the slots before I even auditioned. Mm-hmm. And that, that upset me. But um, I started voice lessons like... Uh, at college like I'd never had voice lessons before college and uh, so I ended up going through all of that and my senior year or well the way that Rowan works as you guys know is you it was possible to be simultaneously freshman sophomore junior and senior and super senior and <laughs> that I, I was that simultaneously uh in at one point (laughs) um so my for my senior recital I was able to perform um a cycle of five songs called try me good king it's a and the level of skill for this cycle is actually a graduate level performance major piece And I was in my undergraduate for music education, not for performance, for music education. I performed the entirety of that piece for my senior recital as uh, (laughs) for my bachelor's. Oh, and not only that, it's a master's level performance major piece. And I'm doing my bachelor's for music education. And I was able to perform that piece with four mistakes. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And, and yeah. she still and she sounded like a dying cat the whole time. The whole time. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, everyone had earphones in or like earmuffs on. Yeah. yeah. And and I learned, like, I learned after that uh recital, like I ended up, you know, preparing. We, we have to prepare our like programs and everything for our recitals. So I ended up like printing out 80 programs. Um, because they were like, Yeah, nobody gets 80 people at their recitals. So you're gonna be fine with getting 80. I printed out 80 programs and I ran out halfway through filling up the auditorium. Everyone came to my recital. They were like, oh my God, Janae's recital. It's going to be amazing. Let's go. And 
I, I'm just so grateful for, for that experience. I really, really am. It was, it was pretty incredible. Um, and bef I, I was the first person to be able to perform this and this piece in its entirety for Rowan, the history of Rowan. And from what I hear, they still play it on Rowan's radio. <laughs> they still perform my performance of that cycle on Rowan's radio. Isn't it crazy? Um, you, you went mm -hmm. from being or feeling very invisible to feeling incredibly seen, the you know, attention. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing. So you were telling us off, off recording that you want to get into clinical psych and do something with music. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So, um, it wasn't until my, my therapist actually pushed me into it. She was like, you're, you should probably like do this. You should, you sound like you would be a great therapist actually is this something that you're thinking about because I've been trying and trying and trying to get you know I, I went for music education I didn't end up becoming a teacher I couldn't be a cog in the wheel of the propaganda machine that is our education system and that's a whole other thing that I I need to <laughs> podcast about um so I, I I just chose not to get involved with the education system after I got my degrees which I that was the whole thing and then I, uh, I tried doing private lessons and I've had several students and one of my students, it, it turned into like a, a case study where she didn't, she got voice lessons because she wanted to find her voice from her trauma. And she introduced me to this, um, this thing called, called singing therapy, which, uh, is still to this day actually pretty stigmatized in the clinical therapy world even in the music therapy world um he was actually an asshole of a therapist of a person <laughs> but his uh his theories and and efforts were actually pretty well based i i feel and so i worked with this this woman and it was really interesting she was able to access parts of her trauma that she wasn't able to access before. And I, and, and I, I ended up going, Oh, wow. I made all these connections that people that I went to school with at Rowan, when we would have our, our big walls, uh, you know, technique wise going into our, our studies with music. Um, uh, if we would hit a wall with our lessons, a lot of it was around trauma. And I went, Oh, wow that's interesting so so a lot of our trauma uh can manifest in vocal faults and i learned that so um i i would like to continue with music but i would also like to continue with clinical therapy so my goals at this point is to go back to school to get my master's in clinical therapy and then get a, a doctorate in music therapy and a secondary doctorate in uh, psychology and or a tertiary doctorate in uh, sociology because I, I really feel like I have a lot to bring to the table socially with relation to music and trauma and the arts and and mental health and how how we can bridge that gap and bring awareness to society and so that that's that's kind of where my goals are 
it's kind of difficult because I also, uh, because of the trauma, I've been diagnosed with POTS, uh, which is a physical ailment. And I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the doctor. Who's that doctor? He's, he's making waves in the medical community and being able to bridge the gap between psychological trauma and psychosomatic diseases. Okay. Um, pretty big stuff. And, uh, and it's, it's gaining momentum um, in the medical field. And so, yeah, POTS is, is something that I, that I do live with that, um, that I'm trying to navigate and save so money to go to school. And when you yeah. understand the one with the postural or postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. Yep, that one pops. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I've never felt dumber in my life than I do in this <laughs> exact moment. Like, now you know how I feel when I talk to you, Marissa. Now you know Aw, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, Bubba. <laughs> all right so no, thank you I mean, so much i mean your story wow like your life so, wow i mean it's just been so much healing work so much work i mean i i know the amount of energy and work that you've put into your recovery and you know the fact that you've and, and i know we were talking about this before the recording but like four years without suicide almost without suicidal thoughts self-harm the, the whole mind you know, and I, I know from a personal and a professional standpoint, how much work you have to do to be able to get to this point. It is not easy. It is, it, 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 but you, 24 seven, it really, it is. And people don't understand that. A lot of people don't understand that. They want that quick fix. It's not a quick fix. It is not a quick fix. No. no, I put I put blood, sweat, and tears into this work. Literally, literally, literally. All those but look where you are now. You know, you're engaged to a person who makes you beyond happy. You have these huge and beautiful ambitions that I'm like so excited to hopefully be a part of, and, like collaborate. That's not with even you. half of it, though. Like, my partner is this amazing artist and painter, and and he's gonna leave that to me and. And I'm gonna take, you know, take responsibility for this body of amazing work, which by the way, he has two paintings in the permanent collection of the MoMA. Uh, that was a reverse heist. Like, girl, I could go on. My life is fucking ridiculous. We're gonna <laughs> chat outside of here. <laughs> I'm very excited. No, I think, think Bubba has to no, go. It, yeah, Bubba no, has to go. You're, you're fine, you're fine. Um, no, I, I already, Took care of it but it's it's one of those things where you know i i you know i have a lot of respect for janae and the work that she's done for herself and you know and and really i do i i genuinely always appreciate when you share it i mean i know you're you are very you're proud of yourself and you have every reason to be you know, <laughs> I, I know you put it out there on social media i know you don't i mean you're i mean, open, I mean that's, that's part of this though like that's that's what i believe so deeply is that we need to be able to communicate about this as a society like okay. and people you know part of part of that like uh the symptom of uh one of the symptoms of borderline personality disorder is emotional exhibitionism right and boom ah, you know look at my heart and my feelings <laughs> look at my heart like what the fuck is wrong with that what is wrong with that why can't we actually communicate about our emotions like healthy fucking human beings with one another 
That doesn't make any sense to me that, that, that there would be shame attached to community connectivity when seeking out mental health support and, and fostering a healthy society with relation to emotions. There, there's a disconnect with the mental health community in relation to that aspect, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. I would 100% agree. There's still this ridiculous stigma attached to mental health, but now we're aligning mental health with every problem in society. Everything is mental health problem. Well, then do something to fix our mental health system, right? Like you can't cry, oh, it's mental health, and then not fucking do anything. <laughs> now you got me on my soapbox. Oh, uh, get off your soapbox. <laughs> that's, like I said, that's a whole other episode. But, uh, we've we've just written I, I, 10 I, I, more episodes. So, I know. <laughs> uh, but again, well, and no, I mean, this goes back to the whole purpose of this, of why we started this. You know, I want to bring people on to be able to share their stories and even just start at an individual level, you know, and showing mm-hmm. that even at the individual level and, and again, fostering that sense of community like you're talking about. So, yeah. I mean, and being able to do that, I, I, I do greatly appreciate you doing it. Yeah. And, and my yeah. friends who, who uh, take shelter in that it's really beautiful to see the waves that that has created through social media and my friends who, you know, who regularly see the things that I post and they're like, Oh my God, thank you so much for sharing. You know, thank you so much for, for being real, you know, (laughs) and, um, and they've been able to do the same. And so there's, there's this mental health support, like on the, on my social media, uh, environment that that's very I feel like it's very unique to uh, social media in general thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the healing from emotional abuse podcast today before you go it's important that you know that what you're feeling is normal everyone responds to trauma narcissism and abuse differently our brains go into survival mode to protect us from harm But I want to make sure you know that you're not alone. I'm here, and I want to brainstorm ways that I can help ease your healing journey. Imagine you're standing on a cliff, and on the other side of a deep canyon is the life that you dream of. A partner who connects with you, supports you, and empowers you, and makes you laugh and smile. A life filled with freedom, confidence, and peace. Good friendships, strong relationships. I've been where you are now. I've been standing on that edge, dreaming of the life that I have now. And I built the bridge between where you are and that dream that seems unreachable. I've walked this path with thousands of survivors who live a free, confident, and peaceful life now. Let's walk this path together. If you enjoyed this podcast, you have to check out www.marissafaycohen.com backslash private dash coaching. That's www.marissafaycohen.com backslash private dash coaching. Marissa would love to develop a made for you healing plan to heal from emotional abuse. She does all the work and you just show up. Stop feeling stuck, alone and hurt and live a free, confident and peaceful life. Don't forget to subscribe to the 
Healing from Emotional Abuse podcast and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Marissa F. Cohen and Instagram at marissa.fay.cohen. We'd love to see you there.